Hello and welcome back to this Septic Isle special edition. So this is rather than a continuation of the story we've been telling in series one, it's more of what we're sort of tentatively calling like a bits and bobs episode of interesting stuff that we we couldn't fit directly into the main narrative. I'll go into it in a bit more detail, but things that we thought would be interesting in and of themselves, but maybe couldn't get a whole podcast out of. I'm joined as I have been for the main series by Geordie Paul. How are you doing, Geordie? Uh, I'm good. Uh, the viewers won't know this, but we've had a few weeks off, so I have emotionally recovered. And I'm looking forward to this episode. I'm thinking of it as, it's more of a charity shop episode, to be honest. Like, you know, you're buying books with the pages ripped out. You know, it's, it's all a bit of a mess, but it's still a bit of fun. You know, you're doing some good by supporting us. Yeah, and to be honest, some of the books I've been using as a source for this episode I have purchased in charity shops. So it's all, see, it all fits together. There's all the plan. It's definitely planned, and we're not just making this up as we go along. In fact, don't support terrible authors by second hand. Strong message. Yes, yeah, so going in, as I said, you know, the original plan for the first series had the working title David Gill and the History of Irresponsible Animal Ownership in Britain. But once I started writing it, I realised how much of the script was being taken up by the story of South Lakes and also how that had a sort of clear and easy to follow narrative and the rest was sort of a bit jumbled to incorporate into anything coherent. So we're going to just do this little compilation episode. It's kind of a pot history is perhaps too grand a term, but a smorgasbord of interesting anecdotes and sort of events plucked out sort of early modern history onwards concerning exotic animals which were in or are connected with the British Isles and sort of interesting bits and bobs associated with them so some of them are very much in the spirit of what we've been doing i've saved a couple of the more wholesome ones towards the end just to try and end on a bit of a high after the previous five hours of animal and human death and a terrible man doing terrible things just think of it as a wine tasting for an animal abuse sommelier god <laughs> such a bleak analogy <laughs> i thought it was quite good quite i mean it is it's just, it's just you know <laughs> I just worry that we've become desensitised. Like, oh yeah, that is part of the problem. Now. I'm just like, it's going to be shit. You're going to hate your life. Just get on with it. <laughs> there are nice bits. There's there's nice bits. We're we're ending with something very nice wholesome. animal abuse. No, there's no abuse. The last the last one is very wholesome, and I saved it till then to sort of round everything up. It gets pretty ropey before that point. I'm not going to lie, but you know, we'll uh, we're going to see how it goes, and uh, you can you can see what you think. So. Without further ado, I would like to get into the episode, which we're calling it Septic Isle, TSI Bits and Bobs. Whilst exotic animals have sporadically made their ways to these shores, I think the Roman Emperor Claudius entering Colchester on the back of an elephant, and since then being the most interesting thing to ever happen in Colchester, come at me Essex, they were largely the preserve of the rich and famous. This was a dual consequence of both the difficulty in obtaining them and the costs and complications of keeping them alive. Examples in the medieval era were often, but not exclusively, gifts from foreign rulers to English monarchs and would typically be kept at the menagerie in the Tower of London. For instance, one notable example is the polar bear gifted to Henry I by the King of Norway, which was taken on a rope to the Thames each day where it would swim in the river and catch fish. Which I would imagine would really shit you up if you were some like medieval river salesman. Yeah, that would be rope, but I kind of would like them to still do that today. How nice yeah. would that be? It's like a little polar bear he comes and gets his fish. That doesn't even sound like abuse. Fair play. That, that's positive. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of surprisingly... And then he catch his own fish. Surprisingly sort of progressive, like, free-range enclosure of yeah, the entire like river. Yeah, scraps at it. Yeah, like letting it chill. Yeah, so good, good for you, early medieval 
tower keepers, good for you. We've we've done a, a full series on somebody who wasn't that enlightened about looking after exotic animals. Yeah, <laughs> how was the bear better fed back then? <laughs> you're being you're being upscaled by a medieval peasant. Jesus, they didn't even know what vaccination was. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think they were probably fully aware what the bear was. <laughs> Just this big white thing that gets angry and we don't let it outdoors. <laughs> so yeah, oh, we're not here for you, David. We're not here for you. Right. Now, the real influx of exotic animals came with the age of exploration and or empire, uh, as a constant stream of vessels returned to British ports from all corners of the globe, and with them came various creatures. Often quite deliberately, I know that a lot of sailors would supplement their income by doing this, and sort of the, the old stereotypes of the sailor or the pirate with the talking parrot is mired in fact, insofar that a lot of these people, when they were in the Caribbean, would you know, catch the parrot, use the voyage back to teach it how to talk or to sing. And there was a huge market for these things. So it, it could be seen as quite a savvy investment on the part of the, uh, you know, the ship's crewmen to, to keep this bird alive and to train it um, and then sell it for probably sort of the equivalent of several months wages or more once they docked in port. So that's just one sort of quite well-known example, but you get all sorts of, of things taken back, not just exotic birds. Now, as well as ease of purchase, the sailors who transported the animals back had done so keeping them alive. So were able to impart at least some of the knowledge of how to do just that. Along with the obvious market for these creatures as pets, some enterprising individuals saw an opportunity to make a bit of money and it's with one of them that we'll be starting. So... How are you feeling so far? And uh, are you getting any sort of, you know, de- sense of deja vu? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was a bit happy, like I said, with, with the polar bear. But yeah, it's starting to get a bit scummy again, isn't it? I mean, pirates yeah. didn't have the best conditions to start off with, like, for themselves. So I can only imagine what the animals were treated like. Apparently the birds were relatively well maintained. There is sort of documents from... So the, the Georgian period of instructions on how to like clean a parrot's cage. So there's like written information to be exchanged. So there was, albeit as I said, it, it was it was commercially incentivized, but there there was a desire to keep these things sort of relatively healthy and and happy. I guess uh, no one wants to buy a grey parrot, do they? Well, short of Monty Python, no one wants to buy a dead parrot. It's it's one of those things where you think. Perhaps it was done for the wrong reasons, but ultimately, you know, positive uh, developments were made. I know another one that was popular were giant tortoises, not so much as pets, but because you can keep them alive for months, even sort of strapped in racks. Sailors would keep them as essentially like a, a living food source on, on board ships. A bit less wholesome, that one. Um, yeah, that's a bit sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like, you know, factory farming before the factory. Well, you know, that's on the the, uh, the Voyage of the Beagle. Darwin had meant to bring tortoises back and he, he managed to get some of the smaller ones. But all the bigger ones, uh, <laughs> the captain of the ship ended up eating because he says they weren't justifying the space. That's I don't know why I'm laughing. It's really bad. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce you to the, the first person we're going to be looking at a day. And that's a man called George Womwell. It's spelled like Wombwell. Uh, I think the correct pronunciation is Wombwell. So um, again, if if you're going to be screaming at your headset saying, no, you fool, you've got it wrong. Um, you know, just, <laughs> I am aware I could be mispronouncing this. I'd like to say he's not around to correct us. So. Oh, no, I mean, he died in like the 1830s. So we're, we're covered. We can pretty much say what we like yeah. about him. And with that in mind, let's dive into his story. So for those who've listened to our previous work, you'll know that we on this Septic Isle are big fans of zoo regulation and looking into the past of our exotic animal husbandry, 
that does help, we believe, to strengthen our case for this. So George Wombwell was a shoemaker in London, uh, born in 1777, but everything changed for him in 1804 when he paid £75, which would be just shy of uh, 7700 in today's money, for a pair of boa constrictors that a ship returning from South America had brought to London docks. He made this back rapidly by exhibiting them at various London pubs before investing further profits into expanding his collection to include tigers, llamas, ocelots, monkeys, zebras, giraffes, lions, and an elephant. They were packed in 15 wagons and accompanied by a brass band as they toured the country as Wombwell's travelling menagerie. So this, I imagine, was sort of new at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were a few other people doing this kind of thing. He was probably the most successful of his contemporaries. The opportunities were there, like I said, to start getting your hands on this kind of stuff as a a regular person. I mean, obviously, we say regular person, you know, the fact he was able to drop over seven and a half grand in you know, sort of modern cash on these creatures shows he, he clearly wasn't just, you know, some some schmuck from the gutters. But um, he was uh, sort of not a noble or uh, he was somebody very much sort of the merchant professional classes, middle class, however you want to call it. Um, yeah. Not not some yeah he said not not a member of the nobility or the aristocracy the the, the image of like some some man in Georgian england walking around pubs going do you want to see me snakes <laughs> i mean to be honest i feel a kind of real 21st century problem like envy of you know never having seen one before until some random bloke walks in your pub and just shows you this thing you've never seen before like i, I can really see what attracted the crowd oh yeah and i mean you know South American boas are quite impressive because uh, the the record just says boa, which could be you know any large cons- sort of constricting snake. Sort of again, as we'll we'll look at one of the other animals we discuss, the naming traditions around now they were still pretty loose on what stuff was called. So panther could be pretty much any big cat that wasn't a lion, from like a tiger to like an ocelot or a serval, and. Again, you know, sort of phrases like monkey and ape are essentially meaningless. Um, and a boa would just be a big constricting snake, but could be of, you know, could be an anaconda, could be, could be a python, you could be anything. Yeah, I just, this bloke is honestly like, he just, he gives no fucks, like at any point, as you're going to see. He is just one of the most balls out individuals I've ever read about in terms of just <laughs> doing what he wants. It's not necessarily a good thing, but it makes it interesting. Yeah. Now, when it came to his collection, the lions in particular seemed to be a point of pride for Wombwell. Perhaps his most significant achievement was William, uh, named after William Wallace, the Scottish you know, military leader and freedom fighter, if you believe Mel Gibson, and purportedly the first lion to be captive bred in the UK. Now, it's almost impossible to verify this just because of you know the, the history of both the lions in the tower and that several Scottish kings I know were uh, sort of keeping lions and obviously going further back the Roman period. But it was certainly the first of any of his contemporaries, the first in anyone's living memory. So you could say safely, definitely the first lion to be born in the UK within the last 100, 200 years, if not for longer, if it wasn't the first ever. So, you know, again... That's impressive. Like, you must be keeping them in somewhat good nick to get yeah. them to do that. Yeah, I mean, I know that lions are seen as one of the easier species to breed by modern zoos, but again, that's with all the modern amenities and the understanding of space. And to get into adulthood as well, you'd think with, I would imagine, pretty rudimentary understanding of of what these creatures need. Mm. So, uh, he also had another lion named Nero, who I think he'd raised from quite a young age, so hadn't bred himself, but had acquired at a 
when he was quite young because Nero was said to be fully docile and domesticated and almost like a pet. So sort of friendly, soppy, non-aggressive. So again, probably quite an interesting thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I think it demonstrates a degree of understanding of animal husbandry and psychology that uh, yeah. you know some of his peers, he seemed to be more interested in just sticking it in a cage and pointing at it. And let's be honest, one bottle wasn't above that, as you're going to you're going to learn but i think there was again maybe not for the right reasons but a, a degree of desire to actually understand his craft as sort of a, a purveyor and shower of exotic beasts mm-hmm. now the contrasting nature of these two beasts were on show when one well collaborated with a man named sam wedgbury to answer the question that literally nobody else was asking what would happen if you tried to make six dogs fight a lion um not good things <laughs> I mean, they've asked. They will find answers. (laughs) It doesn't get any better. I'm just going to plough on. So the dogs were provided by a kennel owner named Ben White, and he sent his assistant, Bill George, to be on site. Bill apparently tried to repeatedly persuade everyone involved that this was a bad idea. Oh, poor Bill. I can just imagine trying to tell everyone. Well, Bill George is is a really interesting individual, actually, when I I was reading about this. So we're... He was a former bare knuckle prize fighter who sort of wanted to get out of that because being punched in the face for a living, I can I can see not being particularly appealing, particularly in an era where the medical care options are like amputation and laudanum. So <laughs> that retirement's not looking great. So he uh, he got sort of apprenticed or became an assistant to this this guy Ben White. After White died, he took over the kennel as himself and sought to steer them away from being provisionary of fighting dogs and actually did a lot to rehabilitate the image of the bulldog from a, a scrapping fighting hound to a domestic companion he's responsible for sort of the breeding of miniature bulldogs and also responsible for sort of popularizing the mastiff as well as a as a sort of companion animal rather than like for hunting heavy game he was even seen to be so knowledgeable that charles dickens was apparently in consultation with him when he was writing like the dog scenes for for bullseye and oliver twist uh, so really interesting guy. And by the standards of the people he was hanging out with, a lot less of a dick. Yeah, yeah. a sane voice. And <laughs> they so often get drowned out on this podcast. Bill, are you sure you want our dogs to fight these lions, George, as he will forever be known? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> he, he's so he's I imagine. Yeah, I imagine being the assistant, his word didn't carry much weight, though. Yeah, I mean, I think when you say assistant, he was more the equivalent of a deputy manager at this point so it was he wasn't just you know some some guy who cleaned the kennels i think by assistant he meant was was representing him in business matters and rather than being just a like like i said some uh sort of medial position I, another great story about him sorry i know we're diverting was he used to kick off if letters to him weren't uh, letters addressed to him improperly didn't reach him and would go down to the post office and threatened <laughs> threatened to fight the postmaster general if this continued Jesus. Uh, <laughs> what a hero. <laughs> God, what a man. Bill George gives no fucks, except for when it comes to lion baiting, in yeah. which case he has a That's lot of fucks to give. As long as his dogs are okay, he'll kill everyone else. Uh, again, I'm thinking George Nero, Postmaster General. No basis for saying this, but he probably had it coming for something or other. <sighs> oh, dear. So... Ignoring George's advice, they at first placed Nero in the fighting pit, but were dismayed as he showed little interest in fighting, despite provocation from the dogs. Treated to his placid nature, he instead skulked and apparently just looked rather miserable throughout the whole thing until he was withdrawn. That's cute. Yeah. Undeterred by this, they unleashed Wallace in his place. Wallace was not a peaceful lion. 
Wallace was an angry bastard. <laughs> I also I remember reading somewhere that Nero was Wallace's dad. Um, okay. So <laughs> Wallace is mightily fucked off at this point. Mm. So when Wallace entered the arena, the inevitable occurred, and several dogs were mauled to a degree that would later prove fatal. I mean, Christ, the fact they survived at all to get out of the ring is impressive, I guess. Yeah. But no one could have predicted this coming, not <laughs> the assistant. Not the, the most knowledgeable person on site when it came to what a dog can and can't do. <laughs> it can't take teeth piercing through its lungs. Nah, I'm sure <laughs> I'll be fine. It can't fight something 20 times its size. <laughs> Bill, George, I know you're an expert, but we've had enough of those. Oh, this is big Davy G and the Rhinos vibes. It is like, yeah, it really is. Oh, God. 200 years ago, I shudder to think what he'd have been getting up to. People just need to listen to, like, the people that know animals. (laughs) Stop assuming you know animals. Yeah. Charles Dickens listened to him. (laughs) And he definitely um, didn't have some ropey personal traits. Uh, we love to say it. Yeah, right. Let's let's not open uh, <laughs> open that trapdoor. But yeah, in summary, Bill George, good guy. Wallace can't really blame him. He's a lion. Wombwell and Wedgbury. I mean, lads, did, did you see this going any other way? Yeah, but that's that's not even a clever. Like that's not an experiment. We all know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's oh ridiculous. So, moving on. Dead animals were apparently of minimal concern to Wombwell. In fact, when specimens died, he often made a healthy profit from either selling them to medical schools for dissection or displaying them taxidermied. Perhaps the most extreme example of his adaptability in the face of his creature's demises came at the Bartholomew Fair in London, where he regularly exhibited and he found himself in competition with a rival showman named Atkins. Each man had an elephant as their star attraction, and when Wombwell's keeled over, Atkins responded by advertising that by visiting his show, fairgoers could see the only live elephant at the fair. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, yeah. Wombwell, being a crafty bastard, ran a counter oh, no. campaign saying, you may well be able to see the only live elephant at the fair at Atkins show, but at my show, you may see the only dead one. How is that? Fu- did they well, how did, just like what someone dragged it out? Like uh, they basically put a, from what I understand, I don't know whether they just kept it in its like traveling case or they like took it out and put a tent over it. It's not exactly clear. But regardless of what they did, it worked, as apparently thousands of fairgoers seized the opportunity to gawk, poke at, and prod the deceased pachyderm with the stream entering Wombwell's um, attraction far outweighing the number of guests going to Atkins. Well, that sums us up like, as a species, doesn't it? Yeah, just go poke the dead thing. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Well, there's no encouragement it. to look after the animals there, is there? It's like, oh, if they die, my money actually increases, so why care? <laughs> George Wombwell's zombie menagerie. <laughs> oh, Christ. Like I said, I know I've written this. I really don't, <laughs> don't know what further comment I can add. I was kind of hoping you'd pitch in with something funny. <laughs> I've I mean, got the, nothing the, further to think, say. Yeah, like, the only thing I have to say is it's more of, you know, just more human 
morbid curiosity, isn't it? I've got nothing funny to say about it. The guy's a <laughs> lunatic. I mean, great salesman, I'll give him that. That's a quick pivot. <laughs> you know, Alan Sugar would be proud. <laughs> 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 the ultimate reverse ferret. I'm just... <laughs> Unlike the elephant, the man did think on his feet. <laughs> oh, God. So, to sort of wrap up his story, Womble's fame was such in his own lifetime that he was consulted by Prince Albert on a health issue experienced by the royal dogs, which kept dying. Again, why he's the man who you come in for a dead animal problem? You know... I mean, yeah. But I'll tell, tell you what, Albert. I'll tell you what, Albert. Right? You're looking at this all wrong. It's not the issue is not that the dogs are dying. The issue is what you're doing with them once they're dead. Yeah, you need to get Vic in here, let her poke it, and she'll be sound. <laughs> Apparently the issue was a, a poisoned water source, which you would feel again you don't need to get an expert in to come and have a look at. God. And why weren't they no consulting they... Bill George on this? Because like demonstrably Wombwell's knowledge of dogs at this point is he's overestimating their capabilities. <laughs> he sees him on par with a lion. I'm surprised he didn't just suggest just get a lion, leave <laughs> it free. It's the same thing, mate. Yeah, poor, oh. poor Bill George, just not not getting wrapped enough. I've really, I've really taken up his cause. Bill George, <laughs> good guy, Bill. I mean, we're saying that like prior to his pivot of making bulldogs cuddly, he did spend like a decade training them to fight. So yeah, I mean. Back then, they were all mixed. You probably also, you know, like had terrible views in other ways. Yeah, like let's just let's just not prod that ant's nest. Just I'm <laughs> desperate for for one of these to include a nice person <laughs> for one hero. <laughs> oh God! So one world's other achievements included performing in front of Queen Victoria, and even being referenced in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Veiled Lodger, as an example of a famous lion tamer. That's cool. To be fair. Yeah, yeah, it really... Um, Shame it happened to an arsehole. Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever heard his name when I was reading reading those. Um, so it is a, it's sort of an enduring legacy, I suppose. Um, bit of Victorian pop culture. I mean, to be fair, the elephant also had an enduring legacy. I, I don't know. I think by the, the end of a day of like a couple of thousand people having a prod, the elephant probably wasn't particularly enduring at all. <laughs> oh, just imagine the smell as well. I suppose if it's recently deceased... But how many sticks can you poke a dead body with before it starts to smell? Like, no matter how re. I've no idea whether there's a connection or not, to be honest. I think my, my knowledge of uh, pachyderm pathology is uh, rather limited. So <laughs> this, is, this is why you know, we talked about this in the last episode of the main show, Inside Nature's Giants. They're only one step from this anyway. <laughs> yeah. hey, let's step things up. Bring in David Attenborough and poached dead elephant. <laughs> the sequels are David Attenborough, Planet Earth, David Attenborough, Blue Planet, David Attenborough, Prod It While It's Dead. To be honest, how old is he? He might have gone for this as a child. I mean, this was in his love for animals. This was in, I think, 1825. So even he's, he's at least 500. <laughs> Spirit of the trees, David Attenborough. Yeah. I've seen him walk around with the Queen. They're both, they, they're such a cute old duo. They, they came to this. They definitely did. <laughs> I, I know it's Victoria on the phone at the time, but we're ignoring that. Right. So that wraps up the one world story. Now, this brings us on to the bit which I know you're personally most excited about when I've, I've, I've been discussing the notes with you. <laughs> so 
as evidenced by the tale of Womble and Wallace, existing blood sports in British Isles, such as dogfighting and badger baiting, were experiencing new possibilities with this influx of potential new challenges. And one of those was the uh, the curious story of Jacko Macaco. Jacko. Great name. Oh, yeah. Jacko. Did, did we know how he got the name? Just before oh, yeah, I'll go into that in a bit. But the, the etymology, oh, basically, uh, Jacko was like a term for, uh, it came from like sort of Jack Tars, you know, sailors, because he come off a boat. And Macaco is like a derivation of a Portuguese word meaning monkey. So it's basically Jack the monkey. But oh, obviously, That's like, you know, yet. Jack the Macaco sounds a bit more like fancy for the devilish fighting killer monkey he would become. He was at one point Britain's premier fighting ape. Was Again, there a league? Kind of. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll go into it in a bit, but yeah, um, I think like a lot of sports, because I know like football and rugby at that time, um, it was more sort of a series of rain friendlies. And uh, I think the same thing was the case of fighting animals, but without the friendly nature. Yeah, was he fighting other animals or just other monkeys? Other animals mainly. So okay, I'm, you, you'll notice I'm interchanging the terms ape and monkey pretty liberally here, and that is deliberate. It is in reference to uh, how he was written about. There's two mooted origin stories. One was cited by William Pitt Lennox in an 1860 book called Pictures of Sporting Life and Character. Great name for a fancy book in which you know there is a chapter de- uh, dedicated to monkey fighting. So yeah, like sort of what sporting character does Macaco, no, Jacko Macaco have? Oh, I've got an extract covering that. Don't you fucking worry. (laughs) So, Pitt claims that Jacko arrived at Portsmouth on a ship from an unspecified location, and little time was lost entering him in local fighting pits, where he proceeded to decimate the local dogs and gain sufficient reputation to be taken to London and continue his career there, where eventually he was sold to a pit owner. It should be noted that Pitt was writing between 35 and 40 years after Jacko's presumed death. Okay. So more probably actually more like twenty five and thirty years, but yeah, 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 a while after. So I think I could have this wrong that he may have seen him fight directly, but the recollection is, you know, we're talking half a lifetime later. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of hazy. Take everything with a pinch of salt. Now, the second version is provided by that man who Pitt quotes as eventually owning him, Charles Astrup, the master of the Westminster Pit the time of Jacko's residency there. So the Westminster Pit would be like the, the, a lot of these places in the country, you know, the home of, of various blood sports, normally dogs fighting something. So you'd have organised ratting where it'd be, you know, how many rats can this terrier kill in a fixed period of time? Bear, and, well, not bear baiting by this stage because obviously bears are extinct in the British Isles, but dogs fighting badgers, perhaps dogs fighting bulls. And then, as we're seeing now, more exotic fare being thrown into the mix. So, Ace Drop is reported to have told the Morning Chronicle in March 1825 that Jacko had belonged to a sailor who kept him for three years. Jacko had always been very calm, but one day suddenly became aggressive over a saucer of milk and lacerated three of the sailor's fingers. The sailor had sold him to a silversmith called Carter from Hoxton. Carter had taught Jacko many tricks, but because the ape was extremely aggressive, Carter had to purchase a large sheet of iron to use as a shield whenever he approached him. Carter oh, finally tired. More. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Carter finally <laughs> you won't end it. You won't in a bit. <laughs> Carter finally tired of Jacko's constant attempts to attack him and took the ape into a nearby field where he set a dog on him. Jesus. Jacko defeated both this dog and the second dog and was then matched against a dog bred for fighting at Bethnal Green. When he also defeated this dog, his reputation began to grow and a fight was fixed for him at the Westminster Pit. I'm uh, still liking this more than Pitt's version so far. Pitt yep. is a bit like boring. Yeah, this, this has got a bit. At least... 
Captain America vibes with his iron shields. This jeweler getting... cowering behind an iron shield, throwing yeah. bits of fruit over the top. <laughs> a monkey getting aggressive over a saucer of milk, like sort of, you know, a London hipster. Like, I told you I wanted oats. How many times do I have to tell you, Karen? <laughs> I am lactose intolerant. <laughs> and I asked for it warm. <laughs> Jacko, the vicious little diva that he is. <laughs> Lactose intolerant, but still absolutely smashes cheesy chips on a night out. <laughs> Before beating up your pets. <laughs> I said I was lactose intolerant, but I'm fucking dog intolerant as well. <laughs> Do you else I'm intolerant of? You, Carter. <laughs> you big fuck off Iron Shield. Oh, dear. Fighty, fighty, Jacker. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, I'd imagine this monkey will have been permanently raging, probably having not been fed or looked after properly since it arrived in the country. I mean, I'm never going to blame a monkey for things. And, and <laughs> male primates are quite aggressive anyway, as well. Like, without, I know you have to be quite careful around them, even when they're being looked after properly. So, one which is getting, uh, getting the, the Georgian England treatment, uh, in which, you know, George Wombwell is seen as a standard to aspire to. It's mm. it's probably fucking foaming twenty four seven. Yeah. So yeah, it's unclear what kind of creature Jacko was. Now most paintings, and there were a couple taken from near the time. So again, obviously, you know, artistic license you can't take them as absolutely bona fide. But to give something of an indication, they show something that appears to be a similar size to the dogs it was fighting, and also pretty consistently the presence of a tail. So on that evidence, a great ape like a chimp or a bonobo is unlikely. Yeah. The colouring is unanimously reported as being dark, either black and ashy grey, a dark tan. But again, a dark coloration is fairly consistent across different descriptions. So I've seen people suggesting a mandrill or a, you know, Sulawesi macaque, which are those all black monkeys with the sort of uh, troll doll type quiff on the top of their head. I've seen some people suggest like a Barbary ape, but that would be more sort of golden coloured. So is unlikely um, unless you got one of his sort of an unusual coloration. So I've, I've even seen, you know, at the time someone referred to him as a gibbon, but again, I don't know how much accuracy we can, we can give to uh, reports then just purely in terms of naming things, because like I said, you know, it, it was a bit of a, a bit of a crapshoot as to whether you were using the right name for the thing you were describing or not, unless you were yeah. actually sort of zoologically trained, you know, bit of a bit of a mystery around that one, but I'd um, be curious to hear people's thoughts. What kind of animal was this dead monkey that spent its life being forced to fight dogs? That's the real question here. See, I'm more concerned about asking people to guess, because what if they go and just, like, test it with various sort of monkeys <laughs> and see who, who, which one fights the best? I can report it's not a mandrill, James, because I threw him to my two German shepherds, and he couldn't fight for shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, please don't do that. Like, anyone who's listening. Be please nice don't. to work. We're pro animal rights. David we Gill, talk because about I know when they're violated a lot. David Gill, I know you Google yourself. I know you probably found the first series. I know you probably got hooked, and you're wondering if you're going to re- mention in this one. I know what you're thinking, and I am begging you: do not host a monkey fight. If I can achieve nothing else of this episode, I'm speaking to you directly, David. Do not host any monkey fights. Like we, we really, we don't want to be having to do an episode six. Don't make us do that. <laughs> Just want to cover ourselves, you know, in case he cites us as instigating him. Oh, no, we're not encouraging this. We don't even want another episode about you. You've run your course. Be gone. <laughs> now, you were asking about, you know, sporting life and character. And 
how much sporting life and character could be written about a monkey or ape. Lennox did go into a bit of detail. Would you like to hear his uh, in-depth description of Jacko's fighting style? Uh, I would love to. I like the fact that there's a consistent fighting style. Yeah, I mean, he's not a mug. <laughs> he didn't win these fights by accident. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like, like all champions, he put the work in. <laughs> so, Lennox, in his, in, I'll do my old-timey voice again. His mode of attack, or rather of defence, was, at first, to present his back or neck to the dog and to shift and tumble about until he could lay on the hold of the arm or the chest when he ascended to the windpipe, clawing and biting away, which usually occupied him about one minute and a half. And, if his antagonist was not speedily withdrawn, his death was certain. The monkey exhibited a frightful appearance, being deluged with blood. But it was of his opponent alone, as the toughness and flexibility of his own skin rendered him impervious to the teeth of the dog. That feels a bit one-sided, then. Like, yeah. if, he can't, if a dog's teeth can't even do anything, what's the point? He doesn't need a fighting style. Yeah, I mean, it's just Jacko's hard as fuck, mate. I wouldn't want to fight him. <laughs> Absolutely would not want to fight him. Again, you know, when we launch the Patreon, we're ruling nothing out. And if you yeah. listeners would like to see me host a fight between Geordie and the monkey that we've decided most closely resembles Jacko, then you know what you've got to do. So I take you, take your nut up for this? <laughs> um, I'm getting a bit concerned. <laughs> I don't want to boot a monkey. <laughs> oh, trust me, from what I've read, I'm not worried about the monkey. There's <laughs> <laughs> small dogs he's beating. I'm a bit bigger. <laughs> Just, you know, like all of us, your face is biteable. And, but I know his fighting style now, so <laughs> I can counter it. You can do I'll prep. draw. Yeah, I'll draw him in and claw his neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the way to win. Now... Jacko soon racked up an impressive record with uh, a consensus seeming to be it was around about 14 fights and 14 wins. But he was to meet his match in Puss, a bull terrier owned by another prize fighter, Tom Cribb. The terms of the fight were reportedly that Puss would either last five minutes, more than twice any other dog's length in the ring with Jacko, or kill him outright, with the stakes being £50. Dates are sketchy, but most accounts agree this occurred at some point in 1821, and that Jacko was the victor, although both animals left in a pretty bad way. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was just going to last five minutes. Well, I think as well, um, from what I've read about this this dog that Crib had, it was a bit of a killing machine itself. Again, you know, you, you can't blame the dog. You think the, these things were treated abysmally and, you know, bred to fight. I know that there was one thing that you would do is you'd clip the ears so they weren't able to be grabbed onto, but you think particularly for those of the monkey's dexterous hands, it's removing a potential sort of weakness on the dog. Yeah. But, yeah, apparently this was sort of like, you know, the the two the two contenders coming together, sort of the Pacquiao Mayweather of its day. Okay, yeah. Well, you know that that Joshua Fury fight that everyone wants to happen, but if instead they were being forced into this and not human beings, do, do we know if Jacko recovers? There is debate. So, uh, Richard Martin, otherwise known as Humanity Dick, great nickname. That's uh, funny. Yeah, cited Jacko in a speech to Parliament highlighting animal cruelty. He was given the nickname by George IV, with whom he had at least an acquaintance, if not a friendship. And Oh, what... that's okay. So poor him then. He didn't want to be called Humanity Dick either. He thought it was embarrassing, but the king had called him it. So now he had to go along with it yeah. <laughs> or he'd lose his head. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, do you, you won't be feeling too sorry for him. Okay. What, so humanity was... Dick? Yep. Well, humanity, not necessarily for humanity. Okay. 
He was one of those curious dichotomies whose passion for animal rights was only matched by their apparent disregard for human ones, with he and his family having a reputation being exceedingly cruel landlords in their estates in Ireland. Uh, he was the MP for Galway back when Irish seats still sat in British Parliament. Very fantastic. Uh, and over the, course, yeah, over the course of the famine, estimates of uh, up to 100,000 people on his family's land dying. Some estimates are as low as 10, 15,000, has to be said. So again, you know, like anything at that time, you don't know, but even a, the low end estimate of 10,000 dead yeah, people. 10,000. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of dead people, humanity, Dick. Yeah. It is, maybe that's why he's called humanity, Dick. Like, it's like loss of humanity, Dick. Like, he's oh, the, so many humans. Oh, the humanity, Dick. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. On the animal side, his legacy is distinguished, uh, uh, distinctly more positive. He's notable for, amongst other things, both sponsoring the first animal cruelty bill in 1822. So, the year after, you know, Jacko's final battle, and then subsequently bringing the first prosecution under that act as well. So the, the act was the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act, 1822, but it, it covered other animals, which included donkeys, which is notable because when making that first prosecution for a man abusing a donkey, Martin brought the donkey itself into court as evidence. That's hilarious. I love that. Power move. I hope he made an ass pun as well. Oh, I probably wouldn't have been. A bit, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how serious he was. He does come across as a bit po-faced in some of his speeches. So opportunity missed. But yeah, so poor, again, poor humanity so, deck. yeah, so someone for conflicting legacy. <laughs> so in relation to the speech he made to Parliament, citing Jacko, he stated that the dog died in the course of the fight and that Jacko had his jaw partially ripped off with both animals dying later that night. However, in a similar version of the speech given in 1824, Martin kept most of the details the same, but instead of, uh, of being put out of his misery, Jacko was left to linger for up to five days. So, tiny discrepancy there, but again, sort of largely similar. What is true is after the fight with Puss, or at least the final one, some sources imply this was in fact a rematch after the, uh, the animals had sort of come to something of a stalemate previously, Jacko is not mentioned taken to the ring again. Astrup, his uh, at this point owner and manager of the Westminster Pit, maintained that Jacko survived his wounds and lived on in semi-retirement, dying over a year later from an unrelated illness, after which his remains... Semi-retirement? Attacked... So I think he was... Big... Like they... Yeah. That owner wouldn't keep an animal that wasn't making money, would he? You could probably charge people to come look at him. You know what I mean? Because yeah, you think, one, it's a monkey, I don't know how many are knocking around, and two, he's got this reputation. It's a bit like, you know, it's not quite the same thing, but, you know, sort of you see resources kept for stud. I don't know, maybe if they thought they'd get their hands on a lady monkey, they could make more jackos. I'm purely speculating when saying that. Mm. You think something something like that, if you could keep it alive, you probably would, because there'd be, there'd be some way of monetizing him. Fair enough. So again, I'm not sort of saying, oh, what a good guy he was. I'm just saying, you know, he's a potential cash cow, even if he's not a fighting strand. Yeah. Now, the reason he's, uh, he's claiming Martin's... Uh, Martin's statements are inaccurate, is that he says when Jacko died of an unrelated illness, his, resumed, his remains were taxidermied and sold to a Mrs. Shaw of Mitcham Common, which he claims would be impossible had his jaw been torn away. So, you know, yeah, my monkey didn't have his jaw torn off, and I can prove that because when he died, I had him skinned. Yeah, that's a bit weird. It's, it's a weird yeah. flex, but, you know, it's, it's the only one you can prove make. It? I don't know. I don't know if Mrs. Mi- uh, Mrs. Shaw of Mitcham was ever tracked down or if anyone cared enough. Okay. That's true. You know, it's one more dead monkey. No. Jacko, Jacko, Jacko. Yeah. Much like Wombwell, uh, Jacko enjoyed considerable fame in certain circles in his lifetime. 
such is the extent that Thomas Lansphere, the younger brother of the famous artist Edwin, so you've probably seen his stuff, you know, Monica the Glen, Man Proposes, God Disposes, all that phenomenal sort of naturalistic paintings. Thomas was a skilled painter in his own right and produced a work entitled Fight Between Jacko Macaco, a Celebrated Monkey, and Mr. Thomas Cribb's well-known bitch puss. <laughs> Jacko Macaco, the Celebrated mm. Monkey. I mean, he technically was. I will give him that. Um, Beaten monkey as well, there. Look, all champions must fall. <laughs> I was going to say you live by the sword, but you, you live by the jumpy on the back murder method. You, you die by the jumpy on the back murder method. Yeah. Except for, you know, when you've got literally no choice in this because you were a monkey. But hey. <laughs> this is rough. Poor, poor Jack. This is this is fucking yeah, dark. Yeah, <laughs> um, Thank you for this. <laughs> we're not doing another one of these. <laughs> um, we're, is, we're drawing a line under animals after this. Yeah. Oh uh, no, well, no, we're not because I've started writing one on John Aspinall, but we'll get into that later. Um, <laughs> his legacy also lives on in the 1990 so- uh, 1999 song by the band Scissor the Ballad of Jacko Macaco. The ballad, the ballad of Draco Macaco, which has the uh, the chorus line "Honey, our money's on the monkey." I mean, that's quite fun. Yeah, it's great. They seem like fun guys. They're fellow appreciationists of uh, of Draco Macaco. I mean, again, when we're talking about pod merchandise, a T-shirt with Draco the fighting monkey on the front, I think people would want to buy that. Like with his jaw. Uh, I was thinking, you know, hole, but yeah, sure. You know, monkey jaw, monkey without jaw. It could be like a, maybe like a mug, one of those ones where, you know, when you put the boiling water in, the jaw disappears. Oh, yeah, the jaw comes. Oh, I'd really, can we do that? Or yeah. is that distasteful? I mean, as we're quite distasteful full stop. He's been dead you know? 200 years. You know, like, I wouldn't say we're reveling in this, but, you know, like we're having a good time. I feel anybody claiming too soon is pushing that a bit. <laughs> You know, it's it's the double centenary of Jacko, and he needs to be honoured. And the best way to do that is with Chief Tat from our upcoming gift shop. I, I do appreciate that, the mug idea. It's what the people want. And I am all about a man of the people. Not a man of the monkey. Look, I mean, all I'm saying is legacy in life was being exploited by humans, and I feel that his uh, his memorial should honour his legacy. Yes, yeah, he, he doesn't know any better, it's fine. He doesn't know anything, he's a dead monkey. <laughs> Uh, but in all seriousness, we do not condone monkey fighting. No, but monkey merch based on fighting, go right ahead. But we're we're only human. We are but men. Jacko was but ape. <laughs> Jacko was but ape slash monkey slash dog food. Under t- oh, <laughs> uh, fuck! We're gonna have to cut so much of this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> Uh, his ashes are to be found in the Hastings Crime Museum. So, you know, pod outing, pay our tributes. Uh, ashes? They burned? Well, the, you know, taxidermy just takes the skin. They burned his body, out of respect. Okay. I thought I'd just kind of chuck it in the bin, to be honest. And also probably because they were so fucking terrified of him that, you know, you need to make sure he's finished off. <laughs> what, like a skinless, angry ape <laughs> coming to get you? You can never be too sure. Now... Moving on a little bit, um, now these, these events were taking place in the 1820s, and in 1826, so Stamford Raffles, the former uh, British ambassador to, uh, I believe it was Java or somewhere in Indonesia, uh, and other like-minded individuals thought that actively getting animals together to kill each other might not be the most productive use for them, and subsequently founded London Zoo. So again, you know, 
by modern standards. Stats, yeah. yeah, probably wasn't great, but you know, these are definitely the the relative good guys in the story. Former colonial governor Sir Stamford Raffles. So you know that says a lot about the other people involved. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, it's when we had good old Irish famine for <laughs> defending the cattle. Yeah. This is a story with 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 no real heroes. No. So, London Zoo set a lot of uh, notable zoological milestones for the United Kingdom. It had the first hippopotamus called uh, Obeach, who became a sort of minor celebrity in his own right. Uh, it was even referenced to popular musical songs at the time. Again, just going back to our previous podcast, was allowed access to an outdoor pool because even back then, people were like, yeah, yeah, hippos, water, they mix. Um, however, sorry? Why is this so much better than a certain zoo that won't be mentioned? Yeah, well, the, the superintendent of London at this time was a, a gentleman called Abraham Bartlett, who, again, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of one of provide a hagiography anyone, but from what I have read about him, and admittedly my main source material for this next bit is a book called uh, The Story of London Zoo by a guy called Jay Barrington Johnson, who was a uh, former trustee. So obviously, you know, it is going to be told from a, uh, a zoo-friendly perspective, but even from a bit of independent reading, you know, Bartlett does seem like a sort of a genuinely decent man who did have the, the welfare of his charges at heart. He he did things like sort of make the, uh, for example, the big cat feed more representative of what they're eating in the wild. He did some of the first experiments of adding sort of uh, extra supplements to animals' diets to increase things like, you know, bone density and um, things that we would now recognise as vitamin supplements. So he he did appear to be a man with his heart in the right place at the very least. Okay, that, that's positive at least. Yeah, apparently he also used to fuck with people on holiday because they'd ask him, like, what do you do for a living? Because he wasn't very famous. And because of all the carnivals they were keeping, you could say, I buy thousands of dead horses every year, my dear boy, and they all just seem to vanish. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of time for that. <laughs> I, I do enjoy Jacob. <laughs> fuck off, I'm on holiday. <laughs> don't fucking talk to me so yeah big abe got some uh got some got some positive vibes coming in from him he was also responsible for bringing the first african elephant to be kept properly in captivity to london zoo so he, when he was running the zoo it had been going for 34 years they'd had elephants before they were all sort of the various asiatic subspecies and his name jumbo was a corruption of the uh the bantu word njamba meaning elephant and as a result of his popularity, now when we talk about anything being sort of jumbo-sized, obviously it means very big. This elephant is the reason for that association. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's quite, I thought it was quite interesting. So they, they acquired jumbo. It's a bit vague how they did that, but reading other times about animals in Africa, it generally appears to be they went to some local ruler with a large bag of cash and went, you got any of these lying around? So you can but assume that was the, uh, the steps that they followed at this time. So when he arrived at the zoo, he was standing only four feet tall. He would eventually grow to uh, to be nearly 11 feet high at the shoulder. And when he arrived there, they had a bit of an issue that nobody knew how to look after elephants. Feels like something yeah, you clear up before you bring the elephant home, but you know. Simpler times. <laughs> now, what they did have was a man called Matthew Scott, who was the antelope keeper. And Bartlett had a plan. And I'm quoting directly from the book here. To ensure that his instructions regarding Jumbo's welfare were carried out, he appointed Scott to have sole charge of him. Scott was the antelope keeper and knew nothing whatsoever about elephants, so Bartlett quite rightly felt he would obey him implicitly. I mean, there's like, there's some semblance of a plan there, I suppose. 
<laughs> they've got an idea. <laughs> I mean, well done. Like, what they did was, um, again, I get the when you read about this early stage London Zoo, there does seem to be a lot of quite well intentioned people. You know, often dictated by modern standards, they got it wrong. But I think they you do get the impression they weren't like, actively, yeah, looking yeah. to cause chaos. Yeah, the, there was a desire to sort of try and and, and sort of do the right thing by the animals at, at least reasonable amount of the time and so mm. now because their previous experience had been with asian elephants which are a lot more docile african elephants are not i know that do get some places which will trust them to carry people but when you think of for example the ancient carthaginians riding elephants that was a, a, a subspecies of african elephant which is smaller than the ones we would associate with seeing on a, a television documentary and is now extinct uh, the sort of full-grown African elephant of the uh, the modern subspecies is not generally deemed domesticatable in the same way that the other varieties are. Scott and Bartlett were not aware of this, and much like the Asian elephants did, they deemed that uh, Jumbo should be giving rides to guests. Oh, brilliant. Now, male elephants are considered more unreliable than female, and African elephants more unreliable than Asian. So a male African elephant is ticking all those boxes. Now, one day, uh, I'm quoting from the book again, whilst in the grounds giving rides, something frightened him and he panicked and hurried to his house with his howder, that's like his little seat, strapped to his back. <laughs> the elephant house at that time was situated in the middle gardens, necessitating going for a tunnel in order to reach the riding area in the main gardens. Elephants cannot run, but they can walk very fast indeed, and Jumbo hurried through the tunnel. No one was riding on him at the time, and this was most oh, fortunate, God. because there was no room above the seats, and they scored a groove along the top of the tunnel that could still be seen until the tunnel roof was re-cemented over a hundred years later. That's cool. I mean, I like that they didn't cement it over, because cool story. But yeah, I mean, like you said, the mix of male and African, in terms of the elephant, they were asking for it, really, weren't they? I mean, they were just lucky no one was hurt. Yeah. You get the impression they were learning as they were going. It's trial and error, that's fine. I mean, I su- playing with human and animal lives. I mean, I suppose in what, like, 1860 this would have been, that was probably slightly more... <laughs> um, you know, sort of slightly more acceptable than <laughs> sort of doing it today. Now, Jumbo, as he got older, entered what was called must, which is like periods of um, sexual aggression that sort of pubescent and adult male elephants become susceptible to in which they do become a lot more easily agitated aggressive and sort of secrete this black tar-like substance on their forehead this is one of the reasons why zoos are un, you know sort of often very reluctant to have male elephants unless it, they are there for you know specific purpose of establishing a breeding herd but they wouldn't just have one unless that was in mind because the associated difficulties of an animal that is not only gigantic, but goes through periods of uncontrollable rage, can cause issues. Now, Matthew Scott, the dedicated carer of Jumbo, did appear to form a very genuine and deep bond with his charge. This worked out rather well for both of them. Scott did his best to give Jumbo a comfortable and uh, a comfortable existence and to make sure he was, he was given kindness and affection. And um, Jumbo made sure that Scott got to supplement his income with uh, a large amount of tips that he would solicit from visitors. So, you know, mutually beneficial relationship here. <laughs> Jumbo was loving it. Well, again, we've got a, uh, we've, we've got a quote that, <laughs> about his, his behaviour at this point. We've got that Jumbo was normally perfectly good-tempered and obedient, although he would never accept instructions from anyone but Scott. 
Scott, in turn, realising he was indispensable in handling Jumbo, became a law unto himself and would answer <laughs> to nobody but Bartlett, to whom, however, he did remain loyal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stubborn elephant mixed with a stubborn man. It's kind of like the worst possible case of if you have worked in an office and the IT guy is the only one who knows how the system works. But <laughs> in this case, the system is 11 feet tall, weighs several tonnes and could kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Scott's elephant-based job negotiations. <laughs> you sure you don't want to give need, me a raise? Who even needs a union? Yeah, I mean, when you've got when you if, if every worker was allowed, you know, a, a three metre tall bull elephant that answered only to them, I would agree that you know unions would be less relevant. Strike would become a very different term. <laughs> My elephant will strike you. <laughs> I think you'll find you will be paying me for overtime. <laughs> hey, boss, remember how you used to have a car? <laughs> it wasn't as heavy as my elephant. <laughs> Fantastic. So as Jumbo got older, he uh, unfortunately did become more and more difficult to handle. While Scott could generally con- keep him under control when he wasn't in must, when that was the case, all bets were off. At first, Bartlett, as an emergency measure, ordered the zoo to keep a high-powered rifle on the grounds, you know, as a last resort. Note that, David, last resort. (laughs) Not opening move. (laughs) But they also took measures to reinforce the animal's housing and make sure it was unable to escape. Imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Abraham Bartlett, you were truly before your time. Unfortunately, the, uh, the council members who governed the zoo and who Bartlett reported to were becoming rather concerned at the idea of having a bull elephant on the rampage uh, and were scared at the idea of uh, the damage he could do in the zoo and even London as a London as a wider area if he somehow managed to get loose. So they started casting around to see if an alternative home could be found. And here we find noted historical bellend P.T. Barnum shoving his beak in. In 1882, they received a letter from him, I'm quoting again, from, quote, the great American showman, offering to buy Jumbo, so far had his fame spread, and asking him to name a price. Bartlett was instructed to dispose of the animal for £2,000, and he wrote to Barnum telling him he could have Jumbo for this price as he stands, thus avoiding the expense of the zoo of creating and transporting him all the way to the USA. Barnum replied by telegram, I accept your offer. My agents will be with you in a few days. Barnum later admitted he would have paid £3,000 for the animal. Oh, he got ripped off the elephant. I mean, it's still a huge amount of money. Well, yeah, yeah like, and you've got to, like you said, that you have to transport the thing. Yeah, so this caused something of an issue. Barnum had purchased Jumbo. He had not purchased the services of Scott. Ooh, nice and indispensable yet again. Well, there was a lot of outcry, you know, about, uh, about Jumbo leaving. Uh, the editor of the Daily Telegraph, which had spent most of it, according again to the author of this book, who says, which in its 27-year existence had regularly attacked the Zoological Society... Telegraph Barnum, asking at what price they would be willing to were uh, to relinquish their control over Jumbo in order to be kept in the zoo. Again, at this point, the zoo has sold him, so I don't know what the Telegraph think they're going to yeah. be doing with this, <laughs> this elephant. Where would they be keeping it? I, I don't know. It does not seem well thought through. But Barnum uh, wrote back saying £100,000 would be no inducement to cancel the purchase. So he's, you know, he's, he's really upped from three grand to, uh, to yeah. 100 Exactly, like surely it's like a penny more. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, um, 
blah blah blah. They have various legal wranglings about getting rid of the elephant. But then uh, there's a, there's a rather uh, amusing bit again in this book where they said, <laughs> when the public went to say farewell, a steady stream of a steady stream of gifts arrived for him, mostly food and tidbits for the long journey, but also less practical items such as dolls, books, and even a sewing machine. <laughs> it might be cold over there. Let him sew. The full process confuses me. So Barnum's agents arrived. They set up a big wooden crate, which had been prepared, uh, weighing about eight tons of open bars at one end, allowing the elephant to see out. Unfortunately, Jumbo was uh, not particularly keen on the idea of getting into this small box. So, again, quoting from the book, Scott, the only keeper Jumbo would obey, was undoubtedly not happy at the prospect of losing him and his attendant additional income from tips. Some people at the time suggested Scott had secretly given Jumbo a sign not to cooperate. But even without this, Jumbo would not have entered his crate without firm and correct instructions from Scott. The plan was then tried of walking him to Millwall Dock, from where he could be hoisted onto the ship by crane and lowered into his crate. But they only got as far as the zoo gates before Jumbo refused to go any further. It was a month later that, still having been unsuccessful, Barnum's agent eventually offered to take Scott also, and the keeper accepted. Whereupon, <laughs> Jumbo promptly walked into his crate unprompted. <laughs> 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 Matthew Scott giving no fucks. That that is heroic way to keep your job. To be fair, oh, I love him. It's just the ultimate in job negotiation tactics. Have an elephant. I alone can deal with this truculent elephant. <laughs> the ultimate in job security. You, on your CV, one of your special skills, you should like, look at that elephant next to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the only one that can deal with that. <laughs> he only answers to me. <laughs> You've heard the phrase loyal as a dog? I think it should be loyal as this elephant. <laughs> These are the things they need to be teaching in the university. <laughs> Real transferable skills. Yeah, elephant this rambling. is why we've got a jobs crisis. If the I just, I love it. I love the absolute brass balls and it would just stand there while these people were trying. <laughs> just giving the elephant the wink. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, Jumbo's story doesn't have a happy ending. He ends up dying in a train crash whilst uh, touring with uh, Barnum's Barnum Circus. But I, I do feel that, you know, it was a, it's an interesting little anecdote. Again, I feel there was probably more good intent in the running of a zoo in that little segment that was in the previous five podcasts. Yeah. So, yeah, and uh, Matthew Scott, just working man's hero. <laughs> Real hero. <laughs> he was sticking it to the man. <laughs> now, moving on to our next one, which only tangentially is connected with Britain, but it's, it's such a great story, I thought I couldn't really leave it out. Uh, have you heard of Wojciech? Uh, no, I have not. Oh, he's great. So Wojciech was a Syrian brown bear. Prior to him, they were perhaps most known for their appearances in the Bible, including an instance where one of their number maims 42 children for mocking the prophet Elisha's receding hairline. Jesus, that's a bit brutal. Yeah, so in case you don't believe me, the following is from Kings, book two, 23 to 25, with the translation being from BibleGateway.com. Just going to briefly drop some scripture on you. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around and looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel from there, returned to Samaria. Jesus. I was like, (laughs) Baldy is in the Bible. 
Things I would never have expected in the Bible. Baldy. <laughs> That's cheaper than caffeinated shampoo. <laughs> Divinely That's like the idea of 42 mauling. children, like, standing, pointing at him. Imagine being that hated. But also that there was two, only two bears. So, like, they must have been moving at some pace to get through them. Yeah. <laughs> it's not relevant so, to anything. I just wanted to put that no. in. <laughs> I just heard there was the word Baldy in the Bible. I had to tell someone. Yeah, just, you know, we all love a good child naming. You know, that's, that's really the spirit of this show is about. Now, Wojciech was not a child mauler, but his story is nearly as miraculous. Adopted by a member of the Polish army operating in Iran, so, so brief history lesson, after the occupation of the uh, of Poland by the Soviet Union and, uh, and Nazi Germany, Polish troops were dispersed widely. A number of them sought sanctuary in Britain, where they, they sort of fought alongside other governments in exile, like the, the, the Czechoslovakian army and the, the Free French. This unit, it's a bit unclear. Either they were in Iran nominally reporting to British high command, or they'd been captured by the Soviets, but were released following Operation Barbarossa and were uh, carrying out operations in the Middle East on, um, on behalf of the Allies. But either way, they, they find themselves there. While stationed there, one of their number sees a bear cub and ends up purchasing him after uh, the commander's niece I think or grandniece takes a fancy to him and thinks he's quite cute and you know, if you see a, a baby bear they are fucking adorable uh, really really lovely there um, is a way to keep for the vicious animals they are well Wojciech wasn't vicious he ended up being sort of adopted by the soldiers in an official regimental mascot. He grew to be over six feet tall weighing the best part of half a ton and was fully socialized by all accounts of the men around him he liked affection, he liked hanging out with the soldiers, he liked people, he would apparently ride in trucks with his head hanging out of the window. <laughs> He's just a massive, dangerous dog. <laughs> he sounded great. Uh, apparently he even picked up some of the vices of the soldiers, including a rather strong taste for nicotine, which took the form of eating cigarettes. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> just chew tobacco, but with like, the paper still in Now... This habit of picking up human behaviours came in particularly handy when Wojciech, along with the rest of his unit, was uh, dispatched to the invasion of Italy and found themselves caught up in the Battle of Monte Cassino, which was a, a brutal four-way attack uh, sort of trying to make a pathway into to Italy to open up a southern front in the, the European campaign. Whilst under fire, Wojciech distinguished himself using his colossal strength. He carried ammunition crates that have taken multiple men to lift and help supply his regiment's artillery and allow them to return fire to, present, to prevent their position being overrun. And this bear's a fucking hero. Yeah, oh, what a lovely little bear. But, yeah, Absolute war hero. Yeah, oh, he's, he's incredible. There's statues of him uh, in Edinburgh, in a couple of places in Poland, I think. Is, I don't think it's Krakow, but it is one of the largest cities. Um, I'll, have a, I'll have a look, actually, because I've got another book. Uh, this one's called The Animals War by a lady called Juliet Gardner. But yeah, I've got Wojciech in there. I've got Wojciech in here, and he's um, there's a little ceramic plaque, which you can see if you go to the, uh, the Imperial War Museum from the Polish 22nd Company. And it's got a picture. It's like an artillery wheel with the bear in front of it carrying a shell over his shoulder. So he, he became sort of an, an emblem of their war. But yeah, by all accounts, he was uh, sort of phenomenally brave and cool under fire. But also, I just imagine sort of a Nazi, Nazi soldier seeing a large, a large bear going through severe nicotine withdrawal, loading an artillery piece. You would have absolutely <laughs> shat yourself. Yeah, you wouldn't have been pleased to be on the other side, would you? Ripping a nicotine patch off his shoulder with one paw. <laughs> just <laughs> lugging giant artillery shells with the other. Oh, dear. 
Wojciech's story does have something of a happy ending. So he stayed with his, uh, his unit throughout the rest of the war before the, the Polish forces were demobilized and were a lot of them were unable to return to their homeland following its annexation by the, uh, you know, the, the wider Soviet-held territories. So along with his, uh, I was going to say his colleagues, <laughs> that's quite the right phrase, his compatriots, <laughs> his brothers-in-arms, he was, he was resettled yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I feel he's earned it. Oh, absolutely. He was one of the boys. Yeah, you'd want that bear on your side. He's like a sort of 18-plus version of Paddington. <laughs> Paddington free Paddington deaths Paddington. and Nazis and takes up smoking Paddington got drafted <laughs> Paddington free full metal duffel coat <laughs> right so Wojciech sat along with his colleagues in Scotland colleagues it's fucking comrades, right? That's, that's what we're calling them. Yeah. So a lot of them were settled in Duns, where there is one of the uh, multiple statues to Wojciech is, uh, is located. Others are in Krakow's Jordan Park, in Zagan, also in Poland, and in uh, Prince's Street Gardens in Edinburgh. This last one is in relation to the fact that Wojciech lived out his days at Edinburgh Zoo. Apparently he was very comfortable, he was very popular with visitors. They said he did sometimes struggle with his nicotine withdrawal, but this was helped when former members of the regiment would go to the zoo to drop in on their old pal and smuggle him cigarettes when the keeper's back was turned. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> I mean, you're doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Oh, absolutely. It's hard to be mad. <laughs> Let the bed chomp cigarettes. <laughs> They've all collectively seen some shit. <laughs> if, if that is how he is coping with his bare PTSD, then frankly, none of us are in a position to judge. <laughs> Like, Monday Casino was a horrible battle. But yeah, Wojciech, absolute hero, absolute boy. And in case anyone was worried about the effect of the, uh, the, the you know, the effect of the unusual diet, uh, dietary additions, Wojciech died age 21, which is well within the natural life expectancy of a Syrian brown bear. So. Well, that's lovely. Basically, basically fine. Had a lovely old time. Everyone loved him. Kept on coming to see him after the war. So, Yeah. I told you we're gearing up to the more and more wholesome. As uh, yeah, that that was cute. That was a nice one. Yeah, war hero bear. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, in a perfect world, Wojciech Wojciech gets a brief transfer to South Lakes to sort shit out. <laughs> <laughs> he brings the ammo. Well, he is technically uh, he was enrolled. He was enlisted as private, but following his heroics, he was promoted to corporal. So he does outrank everybody at South Lakes. <laughs> corporal Bear, Corporal, Corporal Wojciech to you, <laughs> like legitimately just hard as fuck. Now. On the, subject, on the subject of Edinburgh Zoo, we've got a slightly less heroic, but possibly even cuter story to uh, to wrap this this podcast up with. Now, I know you've, you've fairly recently been to Edinburgh. I don't know if you went to the zoo. Uh, I did not know, unfortunately. Uh, I'm just worried I've put you off then after five weeks of this. Well, yeah, I, I didn't want to see things now that I know what to look for. Ignorance is bliss. How yeah. do you have gone? You may have seen Sir Nils Olav. So Sir Nils is a king penguin. So I'm, I'm quoting from Edinburgh Zoo's website here, but this is just, just wholesome and lovely. So Nils Olav is named after Major Nils Agilian, uh, or Agilian, apologies Nils if you're listening and I'm pronouncing this wrong, who organised the original adoption back in 1972. The other part of his name comes from the then King of Norway, King Olav. Following his 
his adoption, Nils was given the role of mascot for the Norwegian Guard, but has had a rather successful military career. So there's been three Nils Olavs, and with each one, the promotions keep on coming. So 1972-1982, Nils is a mascot equivalent to a private soldier. In 1982, he really kicks his career on. So he gets promoted <laughs> to corporal. Within five years after that, he's a sergeant. By 1993, he becomes regimental sergeant major. Jeez. Uh, 2001, honourable regimental sergeant major, which I think makes him the highest ranked non-commissioned officer in the Norwegian army. He's got a hustle, to be fair. And what's more distressing is this, in 2001. Well, in 2005, Nils makes the biggest leap yet to colonel-in-chief. <laughs> <laughs> In 2008, um, he doesn't gain a military rank. He does gain a knighthood. Jesus Christ. Which is signed off by King Harold V of Norway. This this bear has more power than the King of Norway himself. He's a penguin, mate. He's a happy, floppy penguin who has no clue that any of this is going on. Cut that out. I get confused for my animals. <laughs> Edinburgh Zoo's got a lot of wholesome animal stories. So yeah, now this is by this stage one of the third Nils Olav, who in 2016 got promoted to brigadier. He's a pretty elite level now. He'll be one of the higher ranking soldiers in the Norwegian army. The footage of him being promoted shows other soldiers having a stand up to attention and salute him because he is their military superior. <laughs> <laughs> Does he ever, like, go to NATO? Oh, he should. I think like, we've brought, like, our top-ranking general to NATO. <laughs> our commanding officer shits on the floor and eats raw fish. I mean, I'm more and more, like, thankful that Norway doesn't have nuclear weapons, because the penguin would have the codes. He doesn't even live in Norway, either. They've, like, outsourced him to Edinburgh. Yeah, that is also slightly, like, a weird situation, isn't it? <laughs> What is fantastic is the uh, the little footnote to this, which is that, um, one, the, the guardsmen of, of his Norwegian regiment, the Norwegian guardsmen, go to visit him whenever in the city performing the Edinburgh military tattoo, which is great. And they were last there in 2016 when they took the chance to promote him further. <laughs> they can't see him without promoting him. <laughs> they just love it. And two, uh, Major Niels Agilian, who um, proposed the original adoption, is now outranked by the grandson of the penguin he first gave. which is just i i just love it you know um there's been three nils olavs consecutively so we've got the uh the first nils olav was um 72 to 87 so he was the one who got to sergeant and then the second was 87 to 2008 and i think the third penguin was the uh the one who received the knighthood um fantastic in one of the articles talking about this uh they make the I feel somewhat redundant point that Nils was the first penguin to receive such an honour in the Norwegian army. I don't know what the competition's like. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God. At the ceremony in 2008, a citation from the king was read out which described Nils as a penguin in every way qualified to receive the honour and dignity of knighthood. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love him. He's got such a it'd happy little It'd make you feel face. bad if you had, if you did have a night, it would make you feel bad, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, there's, there's like a little picture of him walking down the parade, which is captioned, Nils inspects troops of the King's Guard, of which he is Colonel-in-Chief. 
and he has a little you know the all the penguins like in zoos have like a little thing on their flipper so they can tell which penguins which uh, yeah his has the norwegian mili- the norwegian army insignia on it <laughs> brilliant <laughs> that's just fantastic i love him so much oh he's a special it's boy it's like a fun non-threatening army thing it's quite <laughs> nice <laughs> Like when they're doing stuff like this, it's just great. Everyone can get behind it. That's yeah. To be fair, that is why they do it. Like, what a way to unify country. I am happy with the penguin becoming our benevolent dictator. <laughs> I'm um, happy with it becoming our next monarch. Yeah, absolutely. The monarchy is ceremonial, and he's cuter than any monarch we've ever had. Look at his little face, his little flippers. Yeah. If we if we have him as, if we have him as king. And whatever descendant of Wojciech knocking around as, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, so if, that, if any, like, animal deserves to be genuinely highly ranked in the military, you'd think it would be Wojciech, who does, you know, sort of reload weaponry and stuff. Oh, well, you know, mate, I think it's the army's very class-driven. Obviously, he's an immigrant from Iran, you know, so he had that, yeah. had that held against him. Because, you know, this, this is a king penguin, you know, it's a, a regal beast. <laughs> a happy little penguin. <laughs> Wojciech rolled against the glass ceiling but yeah so this is that's kind of us as I said it's a bit more perhaps disjointed than some of the, the regular episodes I hope you've had fun I've enjoyed the ending that was a lot of fun sad at first but a lot better you didn't enjoy the lion monkey dog death match no I was getting a bit nervous about what you were building to but no it turned out to end well yeah, yeah. I thought like there's going to be some more. <laughs> we needed some sort of vaguely wholesome content to stop this all being a bit yeah, of a hellscape. We but yeah, so this, listeners, this is, you know, cheer up time. Yeah, so listeners, again, uh, I have no idea whether this is the kind of thing people would enjoy, or sort of hearing more of, of little bits which couldn't hold up a show on their own, but which we think are interesting. If you do, you know, you know where to let us know. The Twitter is at Septic Isle Pod. I'd also like to take this final show as an opportunity to thank everyone who's listened to the main series so far we are immensely grateful for continued support uh, particularly you in belgium our sole belgian listener you've been with us from early doors you've been downloading everything i don't know who you are but i am loving your energy you're always coming up on the first time i really hope they listen to this one so do i, I really you, hope you, they listen. solary belgian person we love and salute you thank you um, do we have any norwegians yet we've got one person in finland so again you know big up big up the finnish person but i'm hoping this will help us crack those elusive Irino Polish and uh, Norwegian markets. He is hoping. <laughs> we just pander to people enough they'll like us. Talk about their weird monarchy, you know, with where animals rule. I'm on board with it. I, I agree. And if you're listening to this, you're probably outranked by that penguin. So what's your fucking attitude? But no, seriously, like we, we, we are massively grateful for all the the listening and support that we, we've gained so far. It, it, really lovely to uh sort of see people coming back uh for, for multiple episodes and sort of the, the nice things that people have said what we would like to ask you to do is if you have enjoyed the show please rate us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on it helps us grow the show it helps other listeners find the show it helps with sort of the, the rankings of when people see us and sort of suggested as a new podcast so um if, if you could do that we'd be massively appreciative if you like this kind of thing and you like to hear more of it you can find us on twitter at, at septic isle pod or if you've got other ideas for something that you think we could be doing that you might enjoy, put them out there. Can't promise we'll do them, depending on sort of their legality, but we'll definitely give them a consider. But yeah, and anything you'd like to add, Jordy? 
not really more than just thank, thanks for everyone's support. I hope it goes down well, and I hope this little sort of fun addition goes down as what well, goes down well too. Yeah, like it's nice. It's nice to do nice stuff, and you know the series two we think is probably going to go back to the sort of funny but bleak <laughs> that we've we've sort of started making a bit of our, a name for ourselves with. You know, just nice to sort of give ourselves that bit of breathing space and look at the yeah. hero bear and the the mega penguin. A mid-series pause with a bit of cheer. So this has been series one of this Septic Isle. Thank you, Geordie, as ever. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thank you to all the lovely listeners. Good night and goodbye. Bye, guys.